Well, now, if you take your Bibles, will you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23? It seems a little strange that I'm not turning to Hebrews or I'm not turning to Esther, but I'm turning to this passage, Jeremiah 23. I want to consider with you the righteous branch, the righteous branch. So, Jeremiah chapter 23, and we'll read verse 1 through 8. Tragedy awaits Jerusalem and Judah. They are on the brink of destruction. And the prophet Jeremiah, weeping, grieving as he is because God has spoken so vehemently against the sins of his people. Uh, here God unfolds and reveals uh, to him some of the things that are the causes behind the rejection of his people. So, verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock, and you have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but... As the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. And we'll stop just there. May God bless the reading of his word. What a familiar phrase, right? Behold, the days are coming. The days are coming. This is a frequent promise that you find in Jeremiah's prophecies, particularly uh, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their forefathers or their fathers, but a new covenant. And so this is familiar language to us when we come to a study of this great prophet, the book of Jeremiah. The one thing about the Old Testament is that it contains many, many promises of hope, many promises of deliverance, many promises of comfort. God speaking directly to his people through his prophets, doesn't matter who they are. Uh, go back to Samuel, go through Elijah and Elisha, come to Isaiah the prophet and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. God always speaking through his people, his prophets to his people. Broadly speaking to them directly about this whole subject of salvation. That they will be saved that they will be recovered, that they will be delivered from their oppression, from their, their exile to a foreign land. The interesting thing about the Old Testament is that on many, many levels it personalizes salvation. It puts it in the, person of, uh, puts it in the picture or, of a person. Someone is coming. This is the messianic hope. This is the messianic anticipation. When you read the Psalms, you read over and over again about the, the, the hope that the psalmist has, the, the, the incredible reliance upon God to deliver him and to deliver his people. And certainly, God is our refuge and God is our strength as we sang and as we, we saw in Psalm 46. That is the hope of the people of God. It does not matter what century, it does not matter when they live, it is our hope that God will always be our refuge and God will always be our strength. So the salvation of God's people is significant and is central to the Old Testament, which personalizes that deliverance, as I said, sometimes and in the person, a messianic person. 
And the Old Testament has this, this me- messianic vision, this messianic anticipation that someone is going to come sent from God with a particular purpose to deliver the people of God, to save them. In fact, if you go back in the very first place to Genesis chapter 3, you discover in Genesis 3 verse 15 the very first gospel promise, the proto-euangelion, this first gospel promise given that the seed of the woman is going to come and is going to crush Satan's head. In other words, out of Genesis 3, Eve, the mother who lost Abel, who lost uh, Abel to, the, to Cain, his brother who killed him, with the birth of the next son, uh, Seth, is, is saying that this is the fulfillment of the promise. But Seth is not the fulfillment of the messianic promise, though he is, of course, a seed of the woman. But the offspring, the seed, is the promised one who is to come. In other words, there is the expectation throughout the Old Testament of a Redeemer who's going to come and deliver His people. That seed of the woman is also said to be the seed of Abraham. Genesis chapter 22 is said to be the seed of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. These are the promises of God about a future coming deliverer, a future Redeemer for the people of God. He will be, this Redeemer, remarkably a descendant of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, according to Jacob's uh, great blessings upon his sons. Theologically speaking, of course, we discover that you have in the Old Testament these offices that we know to be priest, prophet, and king. And we shall discover that the Redeemer, uh, the one who is promised to come, is the one who fulfills all of those offices. So he fulfills the office of prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18. He fulfills the office of a priest from Psalm 110. He fulfills the office of a king from Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, riding humble on a donkey, and so on we discover that the promised Redeemer, this messianic figure, is going to fulfill his messianic uh, mission through these offices that we find typified in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. In fact, we discover from Isaiah that Isaiah the prophet speaks of him as the suffering servant of Yahweh. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. That the one who is promised and the one who is coming, the seed of the woman, is the suffering servant of Yahweh, whom Daniel speaks of so powerfully and eloquently when he has those visions in the night. I saw one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. And the books were opened, and to him was given a kingdom and a people. That kingdom and that people are the kingdom of God and, of course, the people of God. The divine Son of Man. That glorious title that Jesus himself loved to use of himself so often. I am the Son of Man. All of these, of course, raise our hopes when we read our Bibles of a future coming deliverer, of a future coming redeemer. This is, this is the season when we remind ourselves of these truths, of the coming into the world of our redeemer, of our Lord, the one who came to save us, the one who came to set His people free. These are the promises of the Old Testament. They speak of the coming of Messiah. They speak of the coming Redeemer who has come for us and has delivered us. That's the first thing, this first gospel promise. But the Old Testament is quite unique and remarkable uh, as it in and of itself. As you put it all together, you discover that God or the Old Testament anticipates the kingdom of God coming. And this kingdom of God is a glorious kingdom. It has a throne. It has descendants. It has a king. And so when you read about the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, it's not so much the king uh, like David or King Saul that is really the king, but this one who is different from them all yet is descended from David. Really the idea of an Old Testament kingdom is that God is ruling. That God has come among His people to rule over them and to rule among them. Just as we discover that God rules in our hearts and dwells in us. That He is our sovereign and He is our King. That's the second thing. This anticipation of an Old Testament kingdom. Thirdly, there is this Old Covenant. An Old Covenant that incorporates Israel and Judah as the people of God with all of these stipulations according to the law of God. Which law they cannot keep, 
they break continually. It is this Old Testament covenant that makes way, according to Jeremiah 31, for the new covenant. The old must go. You cannot have the coexistence of the old with the new. The old must become obsolete, must perish, must be done away with so that the new covenant would come. And what is the central issue in the new covenant? God forgives the sins of His people. And God is said to be their God. And they are said to be His people. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is that the Old Testament speaks about recovery and restoration because Israel has gone into exile. And we're all familiar with the exile, the captivities of Israel, the northern kingdom, to the Assyrians, and of Judah, the southern kingdom, to the Babylonians. Those exiles put the people of God outside of Jerusalem, outside of the land of Israel. They were removed. They were dispersed. They were truly exiles. We learn from this that, of course, the book writer to the Hebrews says that you and I are exiles, strangers, as Simon Peter puts it, aliens dwelling in a foreign land. We are exiles from heaven. Heaven is our home. And so this picture of Israel, Judah in the Old Testament in exile, awaiting with hope, with anticipation, their recovery from those foreign lands is typified in or typifies the fact that you and I, exiled from home, will go home one day, brought there by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so God's people are said to be going to be recovered from their exile. You read about that in Isaiah 11 and right here, you read about it, don't you, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 3, and also Ezekiel chapter 36. Not only that, but God goes beyond, and He reveals to us in the Old Testament through the prophet Joel that there will be an outpouring of His Spirit in the latter days, that this outpouring of the Spirit will come upon God's people, upon all flesh, and that they themselves will become truly the people of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God. Not only that, but the Old Testament speaks about the violent approach of what we know to be the day of the Lord. That this day of the Lord will be a judgment by the one who is to come upon all the unbelieving nations of the world. But not only that, at the same time he will come and deliver his people. You read about that in all the prophets, Obadiah and Joel and Amos and Zephaniah and Malachi, the coming day of the Lord. That's not all. The Old Testament speaks about the eschatological new heavens and the new earth, which the book of Revelation chapter 21 speaks about. In fact, the prophet Isaiah is so taken up with the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah chapter 11, 32, 35, 65, and 66, that he just speaks of it. What an anticipation, what a hope there is. That, all of those things, that's the messianic vision. And I say to you tonight, that's that vision that is fulfilled by one person, Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself applies the Old Testament prophecies to himself. For example, he, he makes reference to Psalm 110 in Matthew 22, and he says, that speaks of me. He's the priest. He's the king. He's the one who rules with all of his enemies under his feet. Doesn't he speak so eloquently of uh, Isaiah 53 in Luke chapter 22? He shall bear our iniquities, and so on. It's the, it's the Son of Man title, though, that is that which is frequently used in the Gospels to describe Jesus, that Jesus Himself uses of Himself as the Son of Man. That's His favorite self-designation. That's how Jesus often refers to Himself, as the Son of Man. According to Jesus, the entire Scriptures in the Old Testament speak of Him, don't they? It's what he told the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He says that everything must be fulfilled that has been written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And so when you read about, or we sing tonight, Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God. You may rest assured that your refuge and your strength is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one before whom we must be still. And listen, because He has wrought desolations upon the earth. He is the Lord. He is the King. He is the Sovereign. He's the one Israel and Judah have pinned their hopes on. 
When Jesus leads His disciples in His ministry, He explains Himself to them. Though they are hard of heart and slow of hearing, right? They don't get what Jesus says. What a remarkable teacher Jesus was. How patient He was. How kind He was. You know how it is when we teach our children and we get impatient because they don't... What's wrong with you? Don't you get it? Don't, didn't you hear what I said? Well, they heard a hundred times, but we never seemed to get it. The disciples were like that. Jesus said things over and over and over again to them, and they just didn't understand. They didn't believe what the Scripture says. Only after His resurrection that they believed the Word, they believed the Scriptures that they spoke of Jesus. And so, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Jesus says. Jesus narrows it even further down in that Emmaus passage in Luke chapter 24 when He says, Thus it is written that the Messiah, or the Christ, should suffer and on the third day be raised from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning right here tonight in Jerusalem. That's what He's essentially saying to them, because here I am, conquered death. I'm alive. I'm the first and the last. I have the keys of Hades and death. Forgiveness of sins is tied to the death of Jesus. In the Old Testament, when you sacrificed your lamb, God passed over the sins because He accepted blood shed on behalf of the offerer. But it's only the sacrifice of Jesus that takes away our sins, that washes us clean, that cleanses us from sins. I sometimes think that this is the thing that perhaps holds us back as Christians from truly entering into a, a real, true, joyful fellowship experience with the Lord, that somehow we just don't believe that Jesus has washed away our sins because we struggle with sin so much. Therefore, how can they be washed away? And yet, as far as Jesus is concerned, His blood has removed our sins, as the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea, never to be remembered by God anymore. We must believe what God says about our sins, not what we think about our sins, but what God has actually promised and what God has actually said. All preaching then, doesn't matter when it is done from Simon Peter in Acts chapter 2 to even to tonight, all preaching is ultimately tied to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. That's how the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul understood his mission, his preaching of Christ. He said in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 5 that the gospel that he preached centered on certain truths. And those truths were, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That's number one. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. These truths, the Apostle says, are of first importance. You've got to get that. You must get Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins and He was raised from the dead. When you read your Old Testament, the messianic vision, the messianic hope, the messianic anticipation goes something like this according to the prophets. Messiah is going to come and he's going to suffer. Number one. Number two, Messiah is going to come and he's going to be glorious. Number three, his sufferings will precede his glory. And number four, salvation as a result should be preached in His name to all the nations, shared with all, because of who He is. He suffers, He dies, He rises again, He's glorified, He is exactly who He said He would be. You can't miss Jesus in the Psalms, right? The Psalms are loaded with Christ. For example, He is the, the Son who is enthroned by virtue of His resurrection from the dead. Psalm, Psalm 2. He is the divine King and He is the bridegroom of Psalm 45. He is the eternal Lord. Psalm 102. You are the same. Your years never end. He is none other than our Lord and our Priest and our King. Psalm 110. The most often quoted Psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110. We could cite the sufferings of Messiah. Psalm 22, Psalm 49, Psalm 69. Jesus is everywhere in the Psalms. He fulfills the Psalms. All those messianic 
anticipations of Messiah rejected, suffering, dead, buried, alive, reigning, glorious. That's the Psalms. Isaiah gives us Emmanuel, doesn't he? God with us, born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Isaiah gives us Messiah as the overall ruler of all, the government upon his shoulders, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This is the vision of Isaiah, the great prophet. In light of all of that, what an amazing array of information. In light of all of that, we come to this prophet, Jeremiah, who has so much to say about the relationship between God and His people. A relationship that is fractured, broken because of their sinfulness, their willfulness, their disobedience, their unwillingness to listen to God's prophet, God's preaching through the prophet Jeremiah. It is this prophet, Jeremiah, so sensitive spiritually, so tender in his heart, who gives to us this great prophecy about the righteous branch right here in chapter 23 and also in chapter 33. Israel or Judah, Judah particularly of course, are in trouble in Jeremiah 23. God has threatened judgment upon them. It's coming. It's sure to come. The Babylonians are coming from the north country. Even those who are responsible for the spiritual oversight and the spiritual care of God's people, he says, right here in this passage, Jeremiah 23, have abandoned their responsibilities. They no longer care. In fact, in verse 1, you will notice that the shepherds, they scatter the sheep and they destroy the sheep. I mean, what kind of shepherds are those who have the pastoral care of the people of God? No, they scatter the sheep. They destroy the sheep. There's no shepherding, no pastoral care or concern in verse 2. You see what he says? Therefore, thus says the Lord the God of Israel concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and you have driven them away and you have not attended to them. No care, no concern by the shepherds or the leaders of God's people. And God promises to judge them. The latter part of verse 2, right? Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. But God, being merciful... God, full of kindness and tenderness towards the plight of His people, says in verse 3 that He will bring them back. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them. I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And He further promises in verse 4 that He will give them new shepherds to pastor them, to care for them. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. And if you go down to verse 7 and verse 8, same ideas, the days are coming, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought them out of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought them and led the house of Israel out of the north country and all the countries to which I had scattered them. At the center of this great recovery, spiritual recovery, spiritual restoration of a remnant of God's people is this figure that Jeremiah says is the righteous branch. He's at the, he's at the center, the vortex. He holds all of this together. Without this righteous branch, there is no recovery of a remnant of the people of God scattered. Now, I want you to notice something. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 22, you look at the very last verse of Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless. What man? Go back to verse 28. This man, Coniah. Who is Coniah? Go back to verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Coniah is Jehoiachin. King of Judah. And Jeremiah says, verse 30, Write this man down as childless, a man who will not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So God promises that King Jehoiachin, a.k.a. Kaniah, 
or Jeconiah, that he will be removed to Babylon. What year? 598, 597 B.C. And he will die in Babylon. In fact, Jehoiachin came to the throne, reigned for three months, and then was taken off to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. A short reign, right? Three months, 90 days, done. Judged by God. He will not return to the land. If you notice verse 27... Uh, but to the land to which they will long to return, they shall not return. And according to verse 30, this man, this king, will never have a descendant to sit on the throne of David. Kaniah, Jehoiachin, is a broken vessel, verse 28. He's a despised vessel. Nobody cares about him. And so... Jeremiah 22 verse 30 stands in direct contrast to Jeremiah 23 verse 5. Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. So here you have uh, a king descended from David who says, God says in chapter 22, no descendants of yours will ever sit on the throne. But in chapter 23 verse 5, there is a descendant from David who will sit on the throne. Now, you remember that after 70 years of captivity, which Jeremiah talks about in chapter 25 and chapter 29, that after those 70 years are over, according to Daniel chapter 9, there will be a return to the land of Israel. We see that initial return under men like Zerubbabel, governor, and men like jo Joshua, the high priest. You have a, a kingly rule, Zerubbabel, who's descended from the line of David, and you have this priest, Joshua, and they shall begin or commence a recovery of the return to the land and the rebuilding of the temple, the laying of the foundation, and so on. And after 70 years, they will return as per King Cyrus of Persia and his edict, which you read about in 2 Chronicles 36 and also in the very first chapter of Ezra. They will return to rebuild the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. And God so remarkably was kind to them. He blessed them. He even sent them two prophets, the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, to minister to them, to encourage them, to, to be about the building. They returned somewhere in 538, 537. They commenced building the temple in 536. But then for some reason, for 20 years to 520, well, there are about 520, some 16 years, nothing happened. The temple just lay there, the foundation was laid, but they were not building. They were busy taking care of themselves, building their own homes and their own houses. And God sends them Haggai and Zechariah in the year 520 to issue a proclamation to them, to urge them to return to building. And so for the next four years they do that so that by 516 BC the temple is finished. It's a rubber bell's temple. That's why they went. They went back. These prophets sent to deliver a message from God. Now, I'd like you at this point to turn to one of those prophets, Zechariah. So turn to Zechariah chapter 3. It's the, last, it's the second last book in the Old Testament. So Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8. Just remember, all, all that Zechariah gives us here is given to the exiles who have returned under Zerubbabel. Designed to be an encouragement to them. So Zechariah 3, verse 8. Here's a word to Joshua the high priest. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. I will bring my servant the branch. The branch. You notice that as great as God's blessing is upon Zerubbabel and as great as God's blessing is on Joshua, the days are coming when even greater blessing would be experienced by the people of God. God says in verse 8, Behold, I bring my servant the branch. You'll notice at the end of verse 9, the removal of sin. You'll notice in verse 10, the blessings of prosperity and peace upon the people of God. The branch who is God's servant is coming. The branch who is coming is righteous. Uh, just turn to chapter 6 of Zechariah. So Zechariah chapter 6, look at verses 12 and 13. Say to Joshua, 
Verse 12, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. What a remarkable prophecy, right? This is the same branch that we're talking about from chapter 3, verse 8. This is the same branch who is said to be the righteous branch of Jeremiah chapter uh, 23. Here you see that in verse 11 of chapter 6 of Zechariah that Joshua is crowned, the priest is crowned, which is a prefiguring or a type of the man who is coming, whose name is the branch, who will himself build the temple of the Lord, and this branch is said in Zechariah 6 verse 13, to be the king himself. And it would appear not only the king, but there is a priest who sits on the throne, so we could say he is also a priest. In other words, here is a king slash priest figure, the branch. In one sense, this is the fulfillment of what you read about in Genesis chapter 14 with Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a king-priest, or a priest-king, whichever way you like it. He is the one who rules over Jerusalem, king of Salem, but he is also the one who ministers as the high priest or the priest of God. Simply a picture and a type, as the epistle to the Hebrews tells us, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a council of peace between the king and the, and the priest. They were two separate offices, but now they are combined, it would appear, in this one single figure who is said to be the branch. And from this council of peace, blessing is to flow and this temple is to be built. We know that this is not the rebuilding of Zerubbabel's temple, but this is another kind of temple that we're talking about. Zechariah is, is prophesying, isn't he, of a restored Davidic king who sits on his throne and he's talking about a priest who ministers in the temple of God. The temple is not Zerubbabel's temple that was built, that was a shadow of Solomon's temple. For no Davidic king ever sat on the throne after the temple was rebuilt. So Zerubbabel built his temple, but no king sits and reigns in Israel or Judah. In fact, there's a reason for that. This man, Kaniah, Jeremiah 22, no descendant of his will ever sit on David's throne. That's why there's no king after Zerubbabel builds the temple. No king for the exiles. When they come back to the land, there's just Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, and many things are said of them, blessings from God through Haggai and Zechariah but no king on David's throne. No descendant of Kaniah ever to rule on David's throne. So how do we get a Davidic king? God will have to do it. God will have to do it. Now, you know, you, you have to understand that this is history. This is history, Old Testament history, that's been worked out in the individual lives of people. Just like our history Day by day, tomorrow, tonight, today, yesterday, is the weaving of our lives. We saw some of that with Esther, right? The providential dealings of God with our lives. To form, if we were to go 200 years in the future, because none of us will be here 200 years in the future, but if we were to go 200 years in the future and look back at this history, you would see this pattern. You would see certain things. This is what we see because we go back and we look 2,500 years ago and we see these kinds of events that are taking place, that are spoken of. We understand. But for Jeremiah, right in it, for the people of God, right in it, where is their hope? It's one thing to pray like the psalmist prays, God is my refuge and my strength. But where is that God? Where is our King? Where is our Messiah? Where is our ruler? Where is a priest? Where are they? Where are the shepherds of God's people? Nothing. Nobody. Except the promise that God makes. And that's what I love about God and His word and His promises. He always keeps His promise. He always keeps His word. It is never on our timetable. 
when I demand it, when I think it should be, when I expect it, when I want it, it's always perfectly on God's timetable. Which tells me that God's ruling of my life is perfectly sovereign. That the events of my life are under his care and under his hand. And that I can trust him, that I can depend upon him today, tomorrow, for the rest of my life and for eternity. Because of who he is, he's the God who speaks and the God who cannot lie and he can be relied upon and he can be depended upon. What's my response? Be still and know that I am God. Right? God makes a promise to David. When did he make that promise? Way back in 2 Samuel, right? Chapter 7 and verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me, God says to David, and your throne shall be established forever. The throne that Kaniah was sitting on for three months. But your throne will be established, your house, your kingdom. Think about it. What a promise. Forever. So it is an eternal house. It is an eternal kingdom. And it is an eternal throne. Kaniah is not the promised king. Zerubbabel is not the promised king. Now the thing about Jehoiachin, Kaniah, he had sons. He had descendants. But not one of them sat on the throne. When you get to Matthew's Gospel, you discover that there is this righteous man by the name of Joseph, who is a descendant of Kaniah, but who never gets to sit on the throne of David. Not only Joseph, but Joseph has legitimate sons with Mary. When I say legitimate, between the two of them, James and Jude, that we read about in our Bible, Descendants of David who never get to sit on David's throne. No, another, another descendant must be found. Somebody else must be found. And if you trace Kaniah to Joseph, Joseph conveys legality, brings a legal perspective to the birth of Jesus Christ, who is David's son also. And since Joseph is descended from Kaniah and will never sit on David's throne and neither will James or Jude and so on. It's the other son that we must look to that has the Davidic right. But how does he have the Davidic right? He has the right through his mother by blood. By blood. Not just by legality, which Joseph confers, but by blood. By direct descendant all the way back to Nathan, the son of David. Not through Solomon, Joseph's line, back to David, but through Nathan, a son of David, to David the king. So Jesus of Nazareth has perfect legal claim to the messianic throne of David himself, by blood, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jeremiah 23 verse 5 explains that David, look at 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. In other words, I'm going to continue the Davidic line. I will raise it up for David. And this is the particular person. He's the righteous branch and he shall reign as king and he shall deal wisely and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So Jeremiah 23.5 explains how David has a descendant who will sit on his throne. He's the righteous branch. He will reign as king. And Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12 confirms that the branch will be the king and will be the priest. What wonderful prophecy, right? There's a little bit more though. Will you turn to Jeremiah 33? Go over to Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. And verse 14. Behold, the days are coming. There's that phrase again, right? Behold, the days are coming, as future anticipation. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and make sacrifices forever. 
The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day, my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Have you not observed that these people are saying, The Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose, meaning the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Thus they have, a despised, they have despised my people, so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, If I have not established my covenant with day and night, and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. Wow, what a passage. What promises, right? Notice, first of all, that God confirms that He will keep His promise to David, verse 15 and verse 17. In those days, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So here's the promise confirmed by God that David shall have a descendant to sit on his throne. Secondly, the king that is promised brings salvation. You look at verse 16. And this, in those days Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. This is the name by which it shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Here he brings salvation. He brings justice. He brings righteousness. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah are saved and dwell secure. And Jeremiah, back in Jeremiah 23 verse 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. So he brings salvation, this branch. Thirdly, this restoration, return to the land, is simply the first phase from a physical perspective, from a physical point of view, but the real fulfillment is when the righteous branch does come, he brings spiritual recovery, spiritual restoration, he brings salvation, whereby we dwell secure and we are safe. Because he saves us. He saves those who belong to him, who are descended also from Abraham Isaac and Jacob, who are the true people of God. Notice again, if you look at chapter 32, verse 36, Jeremiah 32, verse 36. Now therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, this is Jerusalem, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Behold, Verse 37, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back in this, to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. What is that? That's the, that's, that's the new covenant, right, of Jeremiah 31, the previous chapter. That's the promise and the fulfillment of this new covenant. Notice the language, right? It's all about spiritual salvation. I will make them dwell in safety. They'll be my people and my God, which is at the heart of the new covenant relationship. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. That's not physical Israel. Because they didn't fear. That's spiritual Israel. When the branch comes to save and to deliver his people. But what is this everlasting covenant? What does everlasting mean? Eternal, right? Forever and ever. Which covenant is forever? The new covenant. Not the old, but the new covenant. So this everlasting covenant is nothing less than the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. So you notice that the prophet speaks, because he has to speak on one level, uh, physically, to give you the picture that what he really wishes to convey is that there is a spiritual undertone which is the fulfillment of these initial prophecies on the physical level. Return to the land is a return to God spiritually. 
not just a return physically, which they did. So there is a fulfillment physically, which is counted by the fulfilling the reality of what it spiritually speaks about, which we discover in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. Which covenant, by the way, incorporates all the people of God, both Jews and both Gentiles, as we know from Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10. This is how we distinguish then between physical Israel and spiritual Israel in our Bibles. The collapse of physical Israel is tied unquestionably to what happened in AD 70, the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ, not one stone of this temple will remain here. The passing away of the old covenant goes with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. What does that involve? What does that entail? No more temple. Therefore, no more dwelling place of God in a building. No more priesthood by which God's people approach because now there is another priest who sits on a throne. That's how we approach God. No more sacrifices, lambs, bulls, goats, rams, whatever it is. No more blood like that in the Old Testament. Just one sacrifice made by one man for all time to take away our sins. So that Jesus, we discover, fulfills what was taken away. Fulfills what became obsolete. That Jesus is our temple. That Jesus is our high priest. That Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. All those glorious pictures of the copies in the Old Testament, which are so intricate and so full of beauty and detail, are completely overshadowed by Jesus, by what He did. So much so that they're obsolete, of no value, gone, finished. Because he, the righteous branch has come. Has come. Just Jesus who is the temple of God, just Jesus who is prophet, priest, and king, just Jesus who died for me, one time, forever. I love the shadows, because they're rich, right? I love the, the copies, they're profound. But I love Jesus, because He's the reality. <coughs> Of all that they prefigure, just types. But Christ, the real fulfillment. When you read Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 30 through 33, you see the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecies and of Zechariah's prophecies. There will be a unique conception. Luke chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. There will be a unique identity. Verse 32 of Luke chapter 1. There will be a unique reign. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And he will sit on David's throne forever. There will be no end to his kingdom, right? A unique conception, a unique identity, a unique reign to give us an eternal people who live in an eternal kingdom with an eternal king on an eternal throne. That's the gospel. That's the promises of God to his people. That's a return, really, to God. Where God says, I will dwell with you and you will dwell with me. I will be your God and you shall be my people. And your sins and iniquities I'll full. Remember no more. It's glorious, right? All spoken in terms of messianic hope and messianic anticipation. Now, you know, I think we're familiar with branches, right? What do branches do? They spread out from the tree, from the trunk, right? Branches spread out. There's the, the word that's used here of a righteous branch, the word that's used of the branch is a shoot or a stump, that he, that he comes from David. This is the fulfilling of Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This is the servant of the Lord, fulfillment, Isaiah 53.2. He grows up as a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. What a prophecy, the righteous branch who came for his people. I will give them shepherds, yes, Ezra's, Nehemiah's, Zerubbabel's, Joshua. I will give them shepherds, yes. Uh, but God gave us the shepherd of his sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me leave you with three truths. The righteous branch, 
Number one, the righteous branch, who is the servant, who is the king, who is the priest. What does he do? He saves his people. He really saves them, truly saves them. They cannot be lost. So he gives them salvation. He gives them redemption through his sacrifice. And he ensures its ongoing validity by his intercession as our high priest at the right hand of God. That's number one. Number two, he restores to them. He bestows upon them all of his righteousness because they have none of their own. Don't you love that? Don't try and claim a little bit of righteousness for yourself because you have zip. Right? Nothing. Claim his righteousness for yourself. Because that's all you can rely on. The righteousness of Christ. He is our justification. If he's our redemption, he's our justification. And thirdly, he secures us so, so well that you can never be lost. You can never lose your salvation, that you can never perish, because He makes us dwell securely, safe. Right? He's our security. We never perish. Just as nobody can break God's covenant with day or night, change it, just as nobody can do that because it's fixed so to this determination by God to send a righteous branch who will be from David's seed. He has a people who are his seed, his offspring that belong to him. And the remarkable thing is he has made them to be priests unto their God. That we ourselves are a holy priesthood, 1 Peter 2.5. That we are a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. That we, as our response tonight, offer spiritual sacrifices. We give Him our lives. We give Him our bodies. We give Him our lips. We give Him ourselves. So, we are a people for God's own possession. We are a people who have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's what the righteous branch came to do. And that's what He has done. And I close with the prophet Isaiah, chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. The branch shall be beautiful and glorious. Is he not beautiful and glorious to us? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these great Old Testament prophecies about our Lord Jesus Christ, David's true son, who fulfills all the hopes and anticipations of us, his people, and who keeps us safe, who has justified us, who has redeemed us. Now we thank you for such glorious truths. Impress them on our minds and hearts that we are loved by you, that you have forgiven us our sins, that you are kind towards us, disposed towards us because of the Lord Jesus. May we walk with you. May we live under the great shepherd of the sheep who gave himself for us. May we please you and walk in your ways. Thank you for this day, this Lord's day, and thank you for your word. Send it home to our hearts and minds, we pray, to give us joy and delight that we are truly born of God, that we are the people of Christ. So we thank you for these things. We commit ourselves now. Go with us as we leave, as we part from each other. We commend ourselves to you. Thank you for this week that is before us. Bless us, we pray. For we ask it all in Jesus' name.